Assalamu alaikum, my name is Ravi. I'm an international trauma expert and therapist having worked with trauma all over the world. This is a very, very important interview for us to discuss in our community. And what inspired it was the Nate Woods lynching. Lynching, a brother, a brother of our own, a Muslim brother in our ummah was lynched, was killed, was executed by the state for a crime that he did not commit. And when this came up and everything, there was a lot of shock within our community. There was a lot of shock within non-black community, but there was no surprise from the black community. This is something that happens every day on the streets, if not in the prisons, it's not at the hands of the governor. It's happening every day. And this trauma, this not being able to trust your police, that not being able to know that justice will be served, that it doesn't matter what video you have. It doesn't matter that there is a recording of you not having a gun, but yet you still got shot. Of brothers and sisters that are running from cops, it's not okay. And I think like what what what's so what's so heavy or confusing or frustrating is that there's a flooding of hashtags that show up when another brother, another sister is killed, is lynched just because she is black. And we all know if these people were not black, if these people that died were not black, they would not have died. They would have not had experienced the same thing that they would have had if they were in itself a different background and that is not okay white supremacy is all over this country and as muslim members of this ummah we have to stand up for our black brothers and sisters our black mothers and fathers it's too much it's too much and when i was putting this together i was putting this together for brother nate woods it was put together in honor of him he was killed for a crime he didn't commit that the own person who committed the crime even confessed i did it alone he is innocent for years and years and years he sat in that jail and even when it was the time for his attorney to show up his attorney did not show up for him he begged for proper counsel he begged for proper representation but justice was not served he did not get it he did not get what he needed and it was not okay. These hashtags that flood, these hashtags that go everywhere, justice for this person, justice for Oscar Grant, justice for this hashtag, I can't breathe. It's too much, it's too much, it's too much. And then we get flooded by these hashtags all over. People are standing in solidarity, resharing a post, double tapping a picture, standing in solidarity in a digital way. But resharing a post is not what the black community needs from us. They need action. We need to support them, not just as an ally, but as an accomplice real active support and there's so many easy easy ways to do that you don't need to be in the front of a protest to show that you are standing in solidarity in support for people that are getting targeted for people that are getting killed just because they are black the trauma that is showing up for people not to feel safe 
And this isn't even, this isn't even specific to the black community. It is whoever the police decides looks black or looks like a threat. Members of our community are being targeted by white supremacists that are pretending to be cops, that are pretending to be there to protect us. It is not, not okay that someone's skin color, that someone's race means that it's okay to be killed. It's okay to be seen as though your life doesn't matter, that justice doesn't, you don't deserve justice. This Instagram flooding, this social media flooding, this hashtag, it's too much. It's not enough anymore. It's not enough when these lives are there. I will not wait for the next hashtag to know that I need to support the black community. I will not wait for the next video of somebody being targeted, of a brother, of a sister, of a mother, of a father being killed. I will not wait for that. I need to act now and I need you to act with me. I'm gonna be sharing this beautiful interview with Dr. Melina Abdullah, one of the founding members of Black Lives Matter, who has supported our Ummah in so many different ways. And in this interview, I will describe the layers of Black Lives Matters what real support looks like, what they really need from us and how easy and tangible it is for us to stand in solidarity. Before I enter into this interview, what I'm gonna do is I'm going to share with you the last words of Brother Nate Woods. I'm gonna read to you what he wanted to share with us, knowing that he was not gonna get justice, knowing that he was gonna be killed, for a crime he didn't commit, knowing that justice would not be served for him. So let me go ahead and read that for you. Had they and I but met at some old residence in Ensley? Had they put their badges before their criminal affiliations, claiming to be law, claiming to serve and protect? Didn't forget to call us the N-word, White men's mentality, police brutality, bent on beating my colored life away. And now the kith and kin at once start preparing the funerals. The cries and laments of the sympathizers are over and they are calm now. The enemies are jubilant. The kinsmen are busy dividing the estate. And as for the dead man, he lies entrapped by his own deeds. Such is the reality of mortal life. The cause of death is severe indeed. And by and large, we fail to realize its gravity. Involved as we are in our daily pursuits, we seldom hint at death. And even when we do... We just bring it in as a piece of conversation. This will not avail us. Instead, we ought to clear our hearts from the thought of all other pursuits and think of death as if it were facing us. This realization can be brought by recalling how you prepared the funerals of your friends and relatives and bore them on a cot to grave, then interred them in the grave. Imagine their faces, their high stations in life, and then reflect how earth would have disfigured the beauty of their faces. Their bodies would have disintegrated into pieces, how they departed leaving behind their children, 
orphans, their wives, widows, and their relatives mourning, their goods, their properties, their apparels, all left behind, and then let the realization dawn on you that one day you are inevitably going to meet this doom. How those who lie dead and still today used to raise laughter in the company of their friends. How deeply they were engrossed in the pleasures of the world. They lay in the dust today. How remote the thought of death was from their minds. They have become its prey now. They were intoxicated by the bubbling passions of their youth. Today their teeth lay scattered. The foot lays broken. The worms are eating into their tongue. Their bodies are infested with my. How frank was their laugh. Today their teeth must have fallen. What plans had they conceived? How they entertained thought of making provisions for years ahead. And yet death was hovering over their heads. The final day of their lives had come, but they knew not that tonight they would be no more. Such is mine own case. I'm busy planning my life today. Little do I know what will happen to me tomorrow. No living being knows the time of its ends. Man makes provisions for a hundred years, yet knows not that he might die the next minute. In Allahi wa in rajun. May our brother Nate receive the highest place in Jannah, inshallah, inshallah. May his family be granted supper and strength during these hard times. So now let's go ahead and begin the interview with Dr. Melina Abdullah from Black Lives Matters. Hi everyone, welcome back to another episode of Chasing Noor where we talk about the light inside us, around us, and from the ancestors who came before us. My name is Rabi, I'm an international trauma expert and therapist having worked with trauma all over the world. So for this specific episode, I have a very special guest for you. Dr. Melina Abdullah, thank you so much for joining my show. So you wear so many different hats, um, a professor, a pan-Africanist, a mother, so many different parts of you that show up with all the amazing work that you do. So let's just kind of take it a step back. So how was your childhood for you? Um, I had a great childhood. I had, um, you know, a great mom. I was raised across the street from my grandparents. Um, I had a very active neighborhood. Um, my mother raised us, my brother and I. Um, it was great. It was, um, you know, there were, of course, traumas and, you know, um, the way in which society kind of converged on the lives of young Black people at the time um, definitely had an impact, but I felt um, very um, shored up by my community and by my my family. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And so what was one of the hardest things you ever went through as a child? Um, there were absolutely challenges to um, my upbringing, but that was always from the outside. It was always societal, the way in which my community was neglected or oppressed. But as a member of a very closely knit Black community, mm -hmm. um, I felt somewhat insulated um, by that community. So I'm raised in a neighborhood that most people would say, you know, 
was a disadvantaged neighborhood, but I feel like <laughs> my neighborhood, you know, advantaged me that, you know, everybody on my block was connected and, um, you know, we had a very solid community and mm -hmm. there were a million kids and I <laughs> loved that. Yeah. yeah, and that's so interesting. And even in terms of just how active Oakland was back then and, and what that looked like and all the different new issues that are rising and shifting. So how was it for you just in terms of like feeling othered, whatever othered kind of means for you? How was that for you growing up in Oakland? You know, I know this term from academia um, because I'm also a professor and we talk about feeling othered or othering. You know, I think that there are, we often focuses on, focus on the way in which um, black and poor communities kind of are oppressed. Yes. But I think that it's really important to also embrace the ways in which we create community power. Yes. And so in my neighborhood, which was, you know, a poor black community in East Oakland, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, we didn't really have gangs per se in Oakland um in the 90s but we had neighborhoods right so i'm from a neighborhood a very active neighborhood called Funktown, right and what was beautiful about my neighborhood is that um everyone there was um black or poor right so there were some non-black people in the neighborhood but blackness was a norm so the othering that larger society would normally heap upon Black folks isn't something I remember feeling, or as a young person even. I think that um, I was more concerned around not uh, being too light-skinned, right? Or um, having light eyes and not necessarily completely fitting into um, black standards of normalcy. My mother raised me to always be proud of my blackness, and I always was. Yeah. Um, I never felt like I wish I was something else. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if there was anything that I wished for, it was um, to be more secure in my black identity. Mm -hmm. um, I, I mean, I guess not internally secure, but um, be perceived not not to have an asterisk next to me like well what else are you right yeah. um, and so the othering that most people talk about in academic terms is not something that I felt within my neighborhood now I know that I experienced like I said economic political social oppression outside the neighborhood I really appreciate you breaking that down even deeper for those that have an assumption of a very like linear idea of black identity. So then on um, what would you say to your younger self? Like, what would you say to your younger self on um, back in Oakland? We don't be all right. That's what I would say. <laughs> I love my neighborhood, right? I love my community. I love my family. Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't change anything about that. There were also things that I dealt with. So, you know, I came of age in the 90s yeah. um, when crack cocaine hit, hit my neighborhood really, really hard. Yeah. Um, I saw a lot of death. Um, wow. A lot of my folks um, who I loved were killed at, um, as a result of the 
um, war on drugs, which ain't nothing but a war on us and TI's words, right? It was something that I lived through and survived through. Um, and, you know, one of my first boyfriends, like, you know, the little junior high school boyfriends, boyfriends in junior high were like the ones that you would sneak on the, we only had house phones then. Nobody had a phone in their room, right? Sneak the <laughs> house phone into your room and try and hide under the covers and talk uh, late at night to your, your boyfriend, right? That was the extent of the relationship. And, you know, <laughs> one of my first boyfriends, Curtis Belton, he was killed when I was in eighth grade, eighth grade or ninth grade. And that, that was like one of the first close deaths, right? That I experienced. Yeah. And then it just seemed to just continue, like almost by the time I was in high school, it was like weekly. And um, then my cousin Trinice was killed um, in 1990. A lot to live through. Mm -hmm. And I think at the time, especially when Trinice was killed, yeah. um, it was devastating. You know, it was devastating. Mm -hmm. And um, like, I remember that being the most intense pain I'd ever experienced was losing her. Yeah. And... I think that, you know, my message to my younger self when Trinice was killed would be that we gonna be all right, right? That we gonna be all right. And, you know, even those tremendous injustices, mm -hmm. um, that tremendous pain, I think um, shaped me and molded me into a person who is ready for a fight right and thickened my skin and made me prepared and so yeah. um you know i would love to have trinice back and curtis back and freddie back and mm -hmm. uh, all of these people who were killed i'd love to have them back mm -hmm. and i know one i can't get them back but two also their deaths are not in vain because Part of why I fight is to change the conditions that stole their lives. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that vulnerability. So then what would you, like when you think back to like your earliest experience with racism, like what would you say was like the first experience that you had? Sometimes when I teach, I'll ask people to talk about um, an experience of racism or racist depression. Mm -hmm. And what I find with them is what I'm experiencing right now, which is that my black students almost never have an example. And so I don't know what my first memory would be. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I, I know like there's a couple that hit me pretty hard. Like I remember um, my mom tried to move me to a, um, different school and she put me into in, in a virtually all-white private school but it wasn't like a affluent it was affluent but it was hippie affluent. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. in Berkeley the kids teasing me and I remember them calling me um, they had a name for me Moose Lips Molina right because my lips were too big now I bet you they're all getting collagen injections right <laughs> <laughs> The sixth grader, it was hurtful. I remember that being hurtful. Um, and I remember um, feeling like I couldn't wait to get back to Oakland. Like, you know, 
I couldn't wait to get away from these white kids. I think me and um, Whoopi Goldberg's daughter, Alex, were the only two black girls. And um, I think we both kind of felt that way. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's like, I think back to like, for me and like how it was for me in terms of like, you know, the mistreatment that I got and I didn't have the typical, you know, South Asian features like everybody else. And so I did stand out. And even just in terms of like puberty, like as I was like getting older and like, you know, developing body hair and like, you know, developing a mustache and what this, what this was of like, you know, being othered in so many different ways that I didn't fit certain ideas or certain things being, you know, one of the only South Asian, you know, kids in school. And so it was something that felt really, really hard for me. So, you know, this idea of other, this idea of just like normalization, that it's like normal to feel different and normal to be treated differently. So let's go into ancestral trauma. Like that word is so colonized. It's so frustrating how it gets thrown around so easily, but the real layers behind it um, get missed. So with all your different layers, all your different backgrounds and experiences, when you hear the word ancestral trauma, what kind of comes up for you? Um... Well, I think for Black people in the Americas especially, that there's a very tangible experience and um, reality of ancestral trauma. It's, it, it's not just about whether it lives in our DNA, right? Whether or not the traumas of our ancestors live in our DNA. And I absolutely believe that they do, right? Yeah. I know that they do. You know, I know that... I experienced something when um, this summer I was blessed to um, go to Ghana, right? And I went on a, a trip to Ghana and I went to Elmina um, Slave Dungeon um, and I went and um, went to the River of the Last Bath, right? Absolutely felt the spirits of my ancestors present um, take over space. And it wasn't just me. I went with a group of about um, 70 African people from the United States, mostly from the United States, and we all felt it. So it was not, you know, something that was theoretical. It's not something that I was just experiencing on my own. We absolutely felt it, right? Um, wow. We know sometimes, I've had that feeling um, similarly, when I've um, flown into, which is interesting because my family's actually from Louisiana and Texas, but when I flew to Jackson, Mississippi mm -hmm. for the first time and yeah. looked down um, on all of those trees, right, on the forests um, in Mississippi, mm -hmm. um, I could feel it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I had gone to a town square when I was, um, went to Oxford, Mississippi, and there was a lynching tree there. Um, it's where, you know, a lot of those lynchings occurred in the middle of that town square. And I could feel it. I went to Parchman Prison when I was in Mississippi, and I could feel, you know, the trauma of ancestors. Um, um, but I think that beyond those feelings mm. of ancestral trauma is also the actual palpable presence, right? So, you know, visiting a lynching tree is not just about theory. It's that there were actually bodies hanging from that tree, yeah. right? 
that when I go to places um, where my ancestors are from, and a few years ago, my mother um, took us on an ancestral tour where we visited every single grave site um, of everyone in my family. Um, And so we went through rural parts of Texas. Um, We went through my family's right from like the Gulf, right where Louisiana and Texas meet. Um, We visited the grave of the first woman in my family to be brought here as an enslaved African. Um, My great, 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 great grandmother, Rachel. Mm -hmm. Um, And feeling her presence and all the way up to my grandmother's presence, all the way up to I have a cousin, Byron Freeman, who was at my wedding. I'm divorced now, but I was married in 2002. And my cousin Byron was the cousin of my grandfather. So I guess I don't know what that makes him like my third cousin, second cousin, something like that. Um, He was at my wedding. And, you know, he and my cousin Patsy were both there. And, you know, they were in their 70s, 80s, 80s. Um, A few years later, my cousin Byron went missing. And um, according to most theories was lynched, you know, and this is in the 2000s. So when you talk about ancestral trauma, right, for African folks in the United States, for Black folks in the United States, you know, it's not just those long memories, it's also very recent memories. Mm -hmm. And it's our present conditions, because it's also, you know, I organize with Black Lives Matter. I'm one of the original members of Black Lives Matter. And one of the first things that we do when someone's killed by police is we go to the place that they were killed. Mm. And so ancestral memory and ancestral trauma is also what it means to go out and be in a space where you are literally standing on the blood of your people, right? Who've been system, whose bodies have been systemically, systematically stolen by the state, right? And so that it's not just about, um, you know, remembering those long memories. It's mm-hmm. also about the present conditions that are creating new memories and new traumas. Um, for other people out there that, um, you know, saw the Nate Woods lynching and how that was and how it, it shocked a lot of people. But I, but the fact that a lot of members of the black community were not shocked by it. It was such a state of like, well, like, okay, you know, like, of course it's still happening. So how did you experience the Nate Woods lynching or how did you feel like the community experienced that around you? I mean, I think that you're summarizing it well, that, um, you know, the murder of Nate Woods at the hands of the state, despite the overwhelming evidence that he was not guilty, despite the pleas of the family, Mm -hmm. right, to spare his life, is not surprising. Um, I think that for Black people, we are more surprised when we get some semblance of justice. And, um, you know, I think the outcome, um, you know, of course we protest because we have to protest. Of course we demand justice because we have to demand justice because every blue moon we get it, right? Every blue moon um, we win that instance of struggle. So we have to 
continue to struggle every single time. But I think that there's the recognition that the state and especially um, what uh, Youssef Salam calls the, the, um, the system of injustice, right? Um, the, um, yeah, the system of injustice is set up to produce the outcomes that it does. So yeah. it's not accidental that they executed Nate Woods or imprisoned the Central Park Five or yeah. kill black boys and girls and men and women the way that they do because that's what the system was set up to do. Yeah, definitely. And I think like um, Yusuf Salam, like he himself, like he posts so many different powerful things. And I remember when I, you know, watched the series um, When They See Us and when when I watched that miniseries, like everything completely shook and changed. And it was just really, really, really confusing for me um, that it's so normal and it's so real and not being a member of the black community and seeing it and being like in a state of shock and frustration, but knowing how normal it felt for members of the black community to be like, yeah, this is happening to me and it is out there. And um, so then, you know, speaking about that and what's happening, you know, to black youth everywhere, so what would you say, like, how did you navigate like those first, you know, conversations with your children in terms of to like race or police violence or just the different layers that are going to impact them when they show up on places? Um, so just like I don't have a first experience, I don't think that there's a first conversation. Have African names that are um, were given to them intentionally. Mm -hmm. My children are firmly grounded in who they are. Um, my children know that they're African people who were born in the United States, that they are not Americans in the sense of belonging to America. I've always spoken to my children as human beings, not as babies. And it doesn't mean I don't kiss them and hug them and give them pet names, but they also know that the police are not their friends. They also know that, you know, there is racism and sexism and um, classism and heterosexism in this world. They also know that, you know, the black community is their retreat space and that they need to build power in the black community and that they have a responsibility to do so. And of course that's balanced with, you know, joy and laughter and other things, but yeah. there was no first conversation about race. Um, black people can't afford to wait to have a conversation. It has to be something that um, we're born into the world knowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then speaking of, you know, Trayvon Martin and it coming up, you know, in 2012, now it's almost the 10 year anniversary of that. And so much has changed and yet so much has stayed the same. And so what would you like, you know, seeing with, you know, the birth of BLM and everything like that, like if there was a shift or if you're seeing different shifts that are happening right now, but how did you experience the loss of Trayvon Martin? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Trayvon Martin is not the first black child to be killed by a white supremacist yeah. parading as, um, you know, a police officer, right? Yeah. And that's what Zimmerman was. He was a wannabe white wannabe cop, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that I've been involved in other struggles um, for folks who've been killed by police and wannabe cops, right? So mm -hmm. I've been involved in the struggle for justice for Oscar Grant. So have my kids, actually, right? Mm -hmm. 
Um, and you know, um, Sean Bell and Devin Brown and lots of other folks, right? Uh, Trayvon, I believe hit me a little differently because so, um, President Obama said if he had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Well, I have a son. And, you know, he was two years old at the time. Mm. And he actually looks like Trayvon, mm. right? And so, you know, same glowy brown skin and, you know, dancing eyes. And, you know, he reminded me of him. So Trayvon hit me a little differently. He also hit the world differently, and I'm not sure why. I'm not sure what his spirit was speaking, but it was speaking something. Um, I'm not sure if it's the strength and power of his mother, if anybody's ever been in space um, with Sabrina Fulton. She is everything, you know. Um, I'm not sure what it was, but Trayvon's spirit definitely sparked a movement. It was the acquittal of George Zimmerman um, on July 13th, 2013, that actually sparked Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we know that the Dream Defenders was activated um, around Trayvon's murder. Um, and there was something about Trayvon's spirit that spoke to Black folks especially and inspired us to um, really pick back up the mantle and struggle in new ways. And so, you know, with teaching and, you know, the different hats that you wear there and everything, do you feel like, you know, with BLM or post, you know, Trayvon Martin, do you feel like, you know, there are different conversations that are happening in the classroom? Do you feel like there's different things that are coming up that you didn't see before? I think that there's a lot of interest um, among my students in getting involved, right? Mm -hmm. Um, in figuring out, I, I think that with the birth of Black Lives Matter, it reminds Black students especially that they have power. Mm. And so we see a lot of interest in my class and on our campuses around um, what is it that, that they can do, right? How do they, what tools are there for yeah. organizing? Um, I think that students are recognizing that what they have on campus isn't what they have to swallow, that they can, don't have to accept the conditions that they're handed. Mm. Um, we can see that with the renewed struggle for ethnic studies on campuses. Mm -hmm. um, I think that students are also saying, you know, shouldn't education be a right, right? Shouldn't higher education be a right? Shouldn't it be free? Students are beginning to expand their view of what's possible. They're delving into their radical imagination and saying, what is it that we want? What is it that we demand? And mm -hmm. that's very inspiring and motivating to all of us, especially me. Oh, that sounds so amazing to be a fly on the wall of your classroom. Sounds like it would be such an amazing, amazing experience. So in terms of, you know, ancestral trauma, something that I hear that gets tossed around so often is um, the term ancestral poverty. So have you heard that? What comes up for you? Like, how do you like define it? I haven't heard of it spoken in those terms, but I'm assuming what yeah. you're referencing is the way in which poverty is handed down among Black folks 
as a result of chattel slavery and Jim Crow, right? Mm -hmm. Which is yeah. really out of the renewed demand for reparations, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, what we need to think about as we talk about reparations, which people keep pretending like is impossible, right? But then uh, Congress just passed a $2.2 trillion um, bailout for yeah. corporations, right? So if they can give corporations 2.2 billion, uh, I can't even make my mouth say trillion, $2.2 <laughs> trillion dollar bailout for corporations, they could have afforded to pay reparations to African people, right? And I think that it's also important to remember that as we talk about reparations, we're not just talking about government payment of reparations, we're talking about corporations paying what they owe. So just very quickly, what we're speaking of is not just the contemporary injustice in terms of disparities around income. What we're talking about is the theft of wealth and how that compounds over time, right? So if my ancestors came here and their unpaid labor enriched white property owners, right, white um, uh, slave owners, white yeah. people who wanted to make my people property, not people, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, yeah. That is stolen wealth, right? That's stolen wealth. But then that wealth is then passed on to the heirs of white owners, yeah. uh, white ownership class, right? Um, we can think about it in terms of sometimes I point to the insurance industry because there's a reason why the big insurers are called State Farm and Farmers. And, you know, it's because oh. they actually made money from insuring slave owners against runaways. Right. So that's where their initial wealth came from. So there are corporations now that hold wealth that actually belong to my people, right? And so when we talk about ancestral poverty, we also need to talk about where wealth comes from and who owes what Randall Robinson calls the debt, right? And so it's not just about evening out the playing field, right? That's what affirmative action is about. Affirmative action is about evening out the playing field, making everybody run the race by the same set of rules, right? Yeah. That we begin at the same um, starting point and have the same rules. The issue is you can't begin at the same starting point until you transfer back the wealth that was stolen, right? Mm -hmm. So the argument for reparations is about you know, even if we run according to the same set of rules, if you've been running the race for 300 years yeah. before I got to start running, I'm never going to catch up, right? What we have to do is hand back the wealth that's been stolen, and that's the argument for reparations. And I didn't even, I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that state farms or farmers insurance are so well known. They're so famous. Everybody uses them. Like I didn't even think of the fact that they would be behind the insuring of so many slaves and what that historic context is, and the, and the generational wealth that that flows through that. And it's interesting because it's not. It's such a, you know, these concepts of reparations, it kind of gets thrown around as if it's like a check and everything. And it's so fascinating to hear the layers behind that and what that really looks like because um, all of that is getting missed. So then what would you say, you know, as also being 
you know, a woman of God, you had mentioned as well. So how does your faith um, intersect your work? Um, and just in general, maybe like on a personal level, on a spiritual level, like how do you feel like both of those kind of intersect for you um, as you move forward in this work? For me, um, God is everything. You know, that when we talk about, and I know that some people who call themselves revolutionaries um, like to minimize the role of spiritual work. Mm -hmm. But if we talk about um, radical transformation, if we talk about ways in which Black people have gained, engaged in revolutionary practice, we yeah. win every time, right? It's always a long struggle, but we win every time. And the way that we win is through spiritual work. So we can look at everything from, you know, the overthrow of the French and the freedom of Haiti, right? Mm -hmm. We can think about, you know, the way in which Nat Turner launched the most successful slave rebellion in the history of the United States on August 21st, 1831, when he saw a sign from God telling him now's the time, right? We can think about the way in which Harriet Tubman, Mama Harriet, said that she actually heard the voice of God in her ear, mm. guiding her path, literally ordering her steps. And so, you know, the, the white, the Eurocentric history books will tell us that Harriet Tubman freed 300 people, but we know that the history books also at least confirm that 700 folks were freed through the Combahee River raid, which Mama Harriet led. So, you know, if 700 were freed there and 300 were freed by taking their own freedom and walking a path through, um, you know, the forests and, you know, uh, rivers and all of that, then we can say she freed a thousand people successfully, right? And that was from hearing the voice of God. So I think that it's really important that as we talk about struggle and things that sometimes seem impossible, like the abolition of jails and prisons and the abolition of police, mm -hmm. that we remember that it's not just tools that are traditionally organizing tools. Yes. It's not just how many Zoom meetings you can have or yeah. how many people you can gather at a protest or how many you know, toolkits and guidebooks you create or books you read or political education you do. Yeah. It's also thinking about ways in which you invoke the spirit of our ancestors mm -hmm. and allow ourselves to be used as vessels for the creator, right? Yeah. And that's what ultimately wins the struggle is engaging in creative ways. And I think about this moment in particular, right? This moment of crisis that people talk about sometimes as um, uh, disaster capitalism, right? It's through moments of crisis that not just those who are the enemy of oppressed people mm -hmm. usher in their vision, but if we allow it to be, yeah. those things that we've been working towards and imagining, yes. it opens yes. that up as well, right? So mm -hmm. if we're willing to engage in both faith and work, think about the demands now where you have millions more people now saying, yes, people should be let out of prisons and jails rather than left to die from the coronavirus. And you're seeing places yeah. like San Francisco virtually empty their jails, right? Yes, yeah. um, mm -hmm. So I think that um, spiritual work allows us to open up a gateway 
yeah. or things yeah. that seem physically impossible to actually happen. Yeah, and I think like it's just crazy to see on the news in terms of like all these like images where black doctors and black nurses are in the front doing these COVID testing stations. They're right there in the front um, in these drive through stations and you're not seeing white doctors or you're seeing black doctors. You're seeing, you know, even in the emergency rooms, there are more black doctors that are out there in the immediate crisis support and the white doctors are in the back and it's just crazy. It is frustrating and it is so normalized. And I think that shock value there and yet it's so normalized within the black community is 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 frustrating. I mean, we know that the healthcare system, like every other system, was intentionally and deliberately created to produce outcomes that place black people at the very bottom. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That we can think of the Tuskegee experiments, we can think of um Henrietta Lacks we can think of you know the ways in which you know public health data shows that um the least believed population of, of patients is black women um yes. so it was no surprise when um I believe it was the day before yesterday that the data came out of Chicago that 70 percent of coronavirus deaths are black people in Chicago yeah. Um, before that, we saw that it was 40% of the deaths in Milwaukee. And of the locales that are keeping data, racial data, it looks like Black people are represented at two to three times our population share in terms of coronavirus deaths. That's not surprising. We saw the same thing happen with the AIDS epidemic where, you know, Black women are disproportionately um, uh, infected with the virus, but also die, right? Yeah. Untreated, there's no resources provided. Mm -hmm. If white America gets a cold, black America gets pneumonia. What's exposed through this current crisis, though, is not just um, inequities in the healthcare system, right? We should absolutely have Medicare for all, right? Mm. Medicare for all doesn't seem so far-fetched now, right? Um, we need Medicare for all, but what else it's exposing yeah. is poverty, right? So why are black people dying at such rates, right? Um, underlying health conditions like diabetes being the result of food deserts in black communities, right? Um, health condition like hypertension being brought on by anxiety and stress among black folks you know we've seen recent studies that say that you know the anxiety and stress that's experienced by black folks actually comes from racism right mm -hmm. um underlying conditions also like um not being believed when you go into hospitals and black people being sent home and dying at home rather than being put on the ventilators in the hospitals right yeah. Um, and so we see lots and lots of um, things like that. The inability of Black people to create social distance when we disproportionately live in close quarters and are unhoused or incarcerated, right? Um, so all of these things yeah. are about the ways in which systems prey upon Black people. And we're seeing it play out in the very worst ways. Um, and then the audacity of white supremacists in Europe to then say, well, black people should be the lab rats and we're gonna test, you know, different, um, different treatments on black people in Africa. 
is, you know, an additional should be outrageous to all of us as well. And so then kind of speaking of normalization and shock value. So right before the elections, this was the night before the elections, um, you had, you know, you, I don't even know how to describe the situation because it's just, it's, it's shocking for me in itself, but you, um, were connecting with the district attorney and you had a gun pulled on you. If you can kind of describe a little bit more about that, if you're comfortable. Um, it was not fun. Um, we have been protesting the Los Angeles County District Attorney, Jackie Lacey, for years now. We've been consistently outside her office for more than two and a half years every single week um, because on her watch, 585 people have been killed by police and she refuses to prosecute those officers. So one of the things that she committed to um, after being pushed um, is during election season, um, our allies um, in the Stonewall Democratic Club echoed our demand that she have a meeting in the Black community. We've been asking for this meeting for more than two years mm -hmm. and um, she wouldn't give it to us. She wouldn't commit to it. But when they demanded it, she finally committed to it. Mm -hmm. She was supposed to have that meeting in December of 2019. Okay. He did not have that meeting. So on election eve, um, we went to her house. And we set up chairs and said, we'll have the community meeting right on your front lawn, right? Um, we weren't on our lawn. We were on the sidewalk, right? But um, <laughs> right in front of her house. Yeah. And so after we set up the chairs, I just kind of nonchalantly walked up to her door, um, rang her bell, and planned to invite her out. And, you know, it was really, you know, just to let her know we were there. Um, and she probably already knew because we weren't quiet. We had been praying and, you know, doing land acknowledgments and doing some other work. So she knew we were there. But I rang her bell and I was standing with a comrade of mine from White People for Black Lives. And we heard someone come to the door and the bell, the doorbell that we rang was a ring system, which is one of those um, camera monitored systems. She could see who it was. Right. Yeah. So someone came to the door and I heard the sound of a gun being cocked, but I thought I was being paranoid. So I looked at my friend Dahlia and I said, that doesn't sound good. Next thing you know, the door swings open. Jackie Lacey's husband, the first thing he does is point a very large handgun out and says, get off my porch. And I don't know how this came out of me, but I just said, good morning. Like very, you can like Google it, the videos everywhere, right? Um, it went viral, but I didn't flinch, you know? I said, good morning. And he said, um, get off my porch. And I said, we will get off your porch, but can you tell Jackie Lacey that we're here for the community meeting? No, I said, are you gonna shoot me? And he said, I will shoot you, get off my porch. And I said, can you tell Jackie Lacey we're here for the community meeting? And then he repeated, I'll shoot you. I don't care who you are. And so that was um, not something we were expecting. Yeah. The gun was pointed directly at my chest, just inches away from my chest. Wow. And I remember 
thinking, mm, is this how I'm going to go out? Yeah. And then thinking, I don't want anybody to have to tell my children, yeah. right? Because, you know, my children weren't there. Um, and so, you know, I think that it was um, very telling that that would be the way in which legal and peaceful protesters would be greeted by the um, husband of um, someone who is supposed to represent the people in court, right? Yeah, and when I saw that, I saw that off of White People for Black Lives page and Dahlia had posted it and it just like, like I remember when people were like seeing that, they're like, is it real? Is it doctored? Does it make any sense? Like this can't be the district attorney's husband of Los Angeles pulling a gun on a citizen with no shame, with no, not even flinching. And it was just like, it was, I was just like, this can't be real. And people were doubting it and everything. And then when I was looking at everybody else's and everything, and I saw that, you know, this is real. Like you and Dahlia were both there at that door when the gun was pulled on you. And it just like, like it just, there was no repercussions. Like, I don't think he got like any, like, I don't think anything happened to him. Like, I don't think he was reprimanded in any way. There was no public statement that was even like published out, right? Right, who would do it, his wife? would be the one to file charges wow yeah and no even public apology like this is the night before the elections like for her to secure her seat as district attorney and there was no shame there was no like guilt there was no apology and how normal it was and you know with the push of measure r and all these other things that were happening and people were standing in line like it was late like late 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 at night people were still standing in line and everything and it was between voting for gascon and her and the other candidate and it just was like, like people were still doubting it and everything. And it just, it's real. The Los Angeles district attorney's husband pulled a gun on a citizen with no shame and had that gun at your chest. And I just, I just, wow. And I think like, you know, seeing that, seeing that not being part of the black community and seeing that, and it's like that feeling of like, this can't be okay, this isn't okay, but what do I do? And I think there's a difference between allyship and being an accomplice. So let's kind of go into that a little bit more. Like, what would you say, like, you know, ways to support the black community um, that are, are ways that are tangible and helpful for the community? Sure. So I always say that there's three things people can give um, their voice, their body and their resources. Right. Mm -hmm. So one of the first things we need um, non-black folks to do, non-black folks to recognize that what happens to black folks will eventually be visited upon everybody else. Mm -hmm. That black freedom is necessary for everybody else's freedom, mm -hmm. right? And so um, there is an investment to be made. And that means that we need non-black folks to invest in lifting their voices around injustices that they sometimes perceive as only black issues. So we need non-black folks to be talking about the fact that 70% of COVID related deaths in Chicago are black, right? We need non-black folks to be talking about the right to housing when you're talking about an unhoused population that's disproportionately black. We need um, non-black folks to be talking about 
um, the school to prison pipeline, um, the targeting of black girls in schools. Um, all of these issues are not issues that only black people need to be talking about. Yeah. Everyone needs to see them as issues that impact them because they do. So use your voice. And what that means um, specifically for non-black folks is we need to recognize that there is rampant racism in this country and in the world. And yeah. so your communities, when black folks are talking about stuff, they don't hear us, right? Mm -hmm. When we say, you know, no, we're being targeted by police, you know, non-black folks are always going, well, what did you do? But within your own community, if you say, um, black folks are being targeted by police, your community will hear you differently. So we need you to use your voice, especially within your own community, to echo what it is that we're saying, right? Yeah. We also need your body. So we need you to show up. That means be physically present, right? Right now we're socially distant. So, you know, maybe virtually present, right? <laughs> um, but when we're having conversations around um, holding Jackie Lacey accountable, and it's bit, I want to be clear, and I don't think we've shared this, but Jackie Lacey is a happens-to-be-black person, right? So white supremacy is not only meted out by white people. Every community has these folks who happen to look like you, but actually represent white supremacy, right? Jackie Lacey is one of those people. Yeah. So when we're saying Jackie Lacey must go, we need everybody to say Jackie Lacey must go, right? We need everybody to be saying, you know, no, her husband would not have pulled a gun on white folks who came to yep. her, right? Um, and it's not okay, right? It's not okay. I don't care what time in the morning it was, right? Because then you hear people going, well, it was six o'clock in the morning. So so what? So what it was six o'clock in the morning, right? Mm -hmm. You don't get to pull a gun on people and threaten to shoot them, right? Yeah. Um, so we need you to show up at these virtual protests. So Black Lives Matter has protests now that we can't be in front of our office every Wednesday at four. We're on Instagram Live every Wednesday at four, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's organizing work happening around, you know, how do we um, use this political moment, use this crisis to usher in new vision, right? Yeah. Our students are organizing now, talking about what are students' rights in the midst of it all. I have three children at home, um, all school age, um, and they're supposed to be, you know, doing their school assignments mm -hmm. in the midst of a global pandemic, right? You know, science work in, or, you know, my daughter who is, uh, my middle child, who is the most physically fit of anybody in our family, is <laughs> struggling in PE, is failing PE, because how is she going to do PE? It's a, there's a stay-at-home order. So the students are, have issued these beautiful demands about um, there should be universal passage of all classes, that, you know, graduating seniors should graduate, right? Yeah. Um, and there should be a graduation celebration for them when this is all over, right? Because this is 
inarguably the toughest year to graduate from high school, right? Um, And so, you know, we need to get behind those demands. And part of that, um, because we can't do it physically, we need people to look at those demands and email them to the LAUSD board, right? Um, And say, you know, I stand with these students who are predominantly black, who are talking about these issues. And then finally, we need resources. And so what does that mean? I think now more than ever, we see what it means, that we're only a few weeks into this crisis Mm -hmm. and we already have Black people who are struggling with issues of hunger and housing. Yeah. Um, And so if you have something to give, you know, I feel very blessed that I um, still have one of my paychecks, right? Because I teach for California State University. So I have my state paycheck that is continuing to come. It's late though, but I think it's coming, (laughs) right? Um, But we have a disproportionate number of black folks who were not working jobs where they can depend on a paycheck. And if they are working jobs and they're still employed, we can think about what's happening with the McDonald's workers on Crenshaw where you know, one of the employees got coronavirus and was fired for taking off, right? So thankfully, all of those McDonald's workers are now on strike. They have no union, but they're on strike. What does it mean to be a McDonald's worker and go on strike? That means you no longer have income for your family. So if you have a little extra income, and even if it's less than it was before this crisis, donate it because there's some people who aren't eating right and so we have an organization that we're a part of called mutual aid la Mm -hmm. and you can donate or volunteer at mutualaidla.org so we tell everybody voice body and resources and we need you to give all of those things so is there anything like last words or anything that you want to say to kind of like you know um say that you haven't said in this conversation. It was so beautiful. We talked about so many different topics in general. No, I don't have any last things other than we're going to win. Like (laughs) we're going to get through this and we're going to win. You know, the only way we lose is by not fighting. Right. And so we want to encourage, I want to encourage all of us to engage in um, all of the facets of work that we have to engage in. Right. So I know my personal challenge is, you know, making sure that I strengthen my physical tools, right? So eat healthy, take supplements, do my walking, all of that, right? But we have um, more time than we used to have, right? Mm -hmm. So we can't be running to work and to meetings and to, you know, taking kids to soccer practice because my kids also are soccer kids, right? (laughs) all that's canceled. So what's that mean? That I have time to read books, right? To talk about ideas. My kids who are on spring break now, um, each of them are in charge of a lesson every day. So the physically fit one has to lead us in a workout every day, right? The, um, my oldest one who is a brilliant organizer, um, Mm -hmm. she's in charge of making sure that, um, we're aware of one kind of global issue every day. And my son who likes watching um, YouTube science videos, he's in charge of teaching us something 
about science every day, right? And so, you know, we have time to do that. I have time to read these books that are piling up that I've been wanting to read. Mm -hmm. um, we also have to take the time to strengthen our spiritual tools. Um, so we have to, and I believe wholeheartedly in the power of meditation. Um, yeah. I know that I would not be here if I hadn't learned to meditate. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, meditating, whatever your spiritual practice is, for me, prayer, um, listening to my ancestors, all of that is really important. And if we engage in those tools, yeah. everything's going to open up mm. and we're going to win the world that we want to live in. Ooh, and maybe if you can touch on um, how different people, if they want to learn about their history ancestrally, how to go about it. I know there's a lot of different sites that I don't trust and there's been a couple of scandals. How did you go about it? How were you able to connect with that group in general um, for other people to find ways to, to reconnect? So I actually did do one of those DNA, or my mother did one of those DNA kits. I gave it to her one Mother's Day when it first became something yeah. but what, the one that we used was africanancestry.com it's black owned um and it's the only one of those ancestry um companies that doesn't sell your dna so if you were black i would suggest using africanancestry.com i don't know if any of the others have changed what they do but i know 23andme and ancestry.com both sell your data and so i wouldn't if it was up to me i wouldn't i wouldn't use those yeah um, most non-black folks anyway can trace back their ancestry they know where they come from yeah. you know for me it was and for us it was like a whole not knowing and it, it means something that we know that we are yoruba and fulani from the place now known as Nigeria. And I also love that the information is presented in a um, decolonized way where they're not um, saying you're Nigerian. No, we're Yoruba and Fulani, right? Nigeria had to be a construct of colonialism, right? Mm -hmm. I'm thankful that I was able to do that. Um, but also if you don't know, I think that um, if you don't know based on DNA, Right. And there's also debate around the validity of the DNA. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, so who knows, but it felt good to me. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think also your spirit speaks to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Who do you feel connected to? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that borders, um, if we know we're from the continent, borders are something like we said, that's a colonial construct. And so. Yeah. If when you touch down in South Africa, you feel connected, then that's great. We went to South, and I, and I don't mean to belabor it, but we went to South Africa a few years ago um, because I promised my children that we would go to the country that their name is from the summer of their 13th birthday. And so my uh -huh. oldest daughter is Tandiwe. Mm. And we went to South Africa because it's a South African name. It's both Zulu and Zosa. And when we got to South Africa, um, everybody were like, was like, oh, Tandiwe, my wife is Tandiwe, or my daughter is Tandiwe. <laughs> and, um, there was a point in our trip where these children who were around the same age as her yeah. surrounded her and began to sing a song called Tandiwe. 
And I've never seen her cry in that way, right? Like she felt this sense of belonging. And, you know, our DNA doesn't point to South Africa and say we're South African. Mm-hmm. But there was some very deep connection um, for her and us in going to South Africa. So I think that it's important to every African person should get to the continent yeah. at some point in their lives. You know, as soon as this, in fact, I would say as soon as this um, shelter in place order is done, hurry up and get a ticket because tickets are going to be cheap to the continent because <laughs> it does embrace you um, differently. It feels good to be in a place where almost everybody looks like you. Well, thank you so much for all of this. I really appreciate all the time and everything that you were able to set aside to do this. So if you don't mind kind of ending in a prayer. Mother, Father, God, we just thank you for this space. We thank you for this moment. We thank you for this platform. We pray that we're used to be vessels of goodness and justice and freedom and peace and health. We pray that the ancestors and your divine voice continue to speak to us and through us. We pray that we do good and usher in the best of you and your vision for the world. Use us for your work. And so it is. Amen. Amin. Ashe. Welcome back. So now I'm going to share some very powerful words from one of the leading members of our Ummah. Imam Zaid Shakir, where he deconstructed what Black Lives Matters looks like. So in this short speech, you can hear about what he describes justice is and what he thinks is how we should best support members of our ummah. So all throughout the world, we're seeing this injustice over and over and over again. Stand in solidarity, not as an ally, but as an accomplice. Do more than hashtag. Do more than reshare. Together, we can help. Together, we can do more than wait for the next hashtag to come up. Let's go ahead and begin that speech. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah. Rabbil alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala Sayyidil Mursaleen. Sayyidina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa salam. Assalamu alaikum. Peace upon you all. I welcome. Uh, let's, let's give another rousing hand to Pastor McBride for that very penetrating talk. I, I want to reiterate briefly everything he said, uh, but I don't want to repeat it uh, by emphasizing some of the points that he so articulately emphasized and illustrated. So I want to uh, move away from the systemic per se, away from the obvious injustices of a state which from its inception has been defined by white supremacy uh, and move towards uh, the old time religion, if you will. Not the old time religion of fire and brimstone, not the old time religion that many people see as being overly judgmental, but the old time religion that emphasizes to us that there is something beyond this material world that there are spiritual realities that are more real than what we can empirically verify and which we can immediately witness. And I think it's very important for us to periodically remind ourselves 
of this because the injustices of our world are becoming so great, so pressing, and so dangerous if they re remain unresolved that they can sometimes involve us to such an extent that we forget about that other realm and we forget that perfect justice, infinite justice, immeasurable justice only exists in that realm and not in this one. So I think this is very important. Now, what I'd like to contribute to this conversation are some of the things that I've taught and teach. Uh, predominantly African-American congregations of Muslims, not exclusively, because most mosques find people of every stripe, every background, and ours in New Haven, Connecticut, Masjid al-Islam, and in Oakland, California, the Lighthouse Mosque, are no different in that regard. But I've had to bury people that were shot by cops, young African-American Muslims. We've had to bury people, young men, who were shot by their peers. So I know the reality and the pain and have seen the, the social implications, how they affect families. I've visited, not so much these days, but in the past on a regular basis, predominantly young men, African-American men who've been shipped away to these gulags of prisons and seeing the impact of that on their lives and on the lives of their families. And I don't know if Pastor McBride had the new Jim Crow on that reading list. It probably was. So to emphasize, read that book and read all the other ones from James Cone, uh, The Lynching Tree, on down the list. To begin to try to understand the implication of these policies on the lives, not just of those who are immediately affected, but on their families and their neighborhoods and communities all across this country. Justice is one of the great human virtues. Aristotle mentioned the four cardinal virtues of justice and wisdom, temperance, and courage. And in the Muslim tradition, Imam Ghazali brought those into Muslim orthodoxy in terms of character reformation and uh, character cultivation. Al-hikmah, wisdom, shaja'a, courage, ifa, temperance, adl, justice. And these are all terms and concepts that we find in the Quran. But justice isn't always immediate. We were just reminded that from the very beginning, the inception of this country, the Constitution relegated African people of African descent to being three-fifths of a human being for constitutional rep representation. Zero percent in terms of actually participating in the political system. Civil war, once again, showed that justice was not forthcoming, and as a result of that, a war was fought, fought that nearly destroyed the country.
a devastating war, which war fought today based on the current population of the nation up which the 30 million people would perish. That was followed by Jim Crow. Jim Crow coming in at the time that W.E.B. Du Bois, Du Bois, mentioned that the, 20th, the problem of the 20th century would be the problem of the color line, indicating justice still had not come. Brown versus the Board of Education, justice still had not come, or we wouldn't have needed that decision. Rosa Parks and Dr. King and the rest, and then a new generation, Stokely Carmichael, H. Rapp Brown, Eldridge Cleaver, Bobby Seale, Huey Newton. Justice still had not come. And now we have the Black Lives Movement, which tells us what? Justice still has not come. So what do we do? While we're fighting for justice, we have to understand that we don't need anyone external from ourselves to tell us that our lives matter. Our lives matter because we've all been given a basic fundamental dignity, human dignity, human worth and value from God. And as we said yesterday, if you're right with God, you're right. And if some racist doesn't think you're right, that's their problem, not your problem. And their problem definitely has implications in this world, and we struggle to fix it. But while we're fix it, fixing it, we understand our lives matter. Our lives matter if they matter to each other. If my, ma my life matters to my spouse, or my children, or my neighbors, or my relatives, then that's an affirmation that tells me Something that those uh, porter, sleeping porter car workers, maids, men and women affirmed, I am somebody. I am somebody. Something that those garbage workers in Memphis and Tennessee affirmed, I am somebody. And something that those young people are standing up all over this country are affirming, I am somebody. But I am somebody. We're at the festivals of faith because God made me somebody. I am somebody because when I go to the family reunion, and I have one in Atlanta, Georgia this summer, looking forward to it, I have nephews and nieces, cousins and aunts and uncles. Unfortunately, no grandparents left who affirm to me that I am somebody. And we have to cherish that. We have to nurture that. We have to, to, we have to build on that foundation, brothers and sisters, as we go forth to do that difficult work, that work that doesn't always involve immediate gratification to change the systems and the power relationships of the world. We can never forget what gave black life meaning in the first place. Black life meant something in slavery. And because it meant something, slaves were able to laugh and to love 
and to value the family that they might have only been able to enjoy temporarily before the wife or the children were sold off or the husband. But they had that ability to be human. That wicked system could not take their humanity away. As the time runs down, we're here in Louisville, Kentucky. Yesterday we mentioned this is Muhammad Ali's city. And when they chronicled Ali's life in a movie, The Greatest, <clears throat> a lot of us don't remember this or that scene from the movie, but we remember George Benson when he sang that song. I believe that children are the future. Y'all thinking about Whitney Houston. <laughs> and George said, the part that brought the tears to our eyes. No matter what they take from me, they can't take away my dignity. Dignity cannot be taken, it can only be forfeited. We have to remind ourselves that we're not giving our dignity away and you can't take it. You can take my, an equal education from me for now, I'm going to straighten that out eventually. You can take away decent housing. You can stop and frisk me disproportionately and throw me in jail. Take away my freedom, but you can't take my dignity. And you can't buy it because it's not for sale. In conclusion, there's an Arab uh, proverb. It goes something like this, فَاقِدُ شَيْءٍ لَا Someone lacking something can't give it to others. There are indeed systems of oppression, there are institutions, oppressive institutions, but they're manned by individuals. And as long as those individuals are racist, as long as those individuals are ignorant, as long as those inf in individuals have no compassion, the institution isn't going to change. So amongst the work we have is a massive educational pro uh, project to educate those individuals, to educate those individuals, and to educate our children, because eventually those racists are going to die. It's up to us collectively as a society to determine will their children be just as racist as they are? Or will their children, when their children are manning the offices of power, will they be just? Will they be equitable? Will they be fair-minded? Will they look at a person and judge him and her based on the content of their character, not based on the color of their skin? What we do today and what we do tomorrow in terms of educating our nation will determine how long we have to wait before we can see the justice that's long overdue. Salaam alaikum.